Welcome to the Glorify Treasure Spread podcast, and these bonus episodes are featuring the main sessions from our Fall 2021 Ladies Retreat, where our sister Julia Higgins shared God's Word with the sisters from Grace Church. Enjoy. first lesson, we looked at Revelation 4 and sought to behold God as he is on his throne. And we were invited with John to look at God the Father, God the Son, through the Spirit. In the second lesson this morning, we learned that we can only enter into the presence of God through our union with Christ, our great high priest. As our great high priest, Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we contemplated that Jesus as a great high priest was perfect in his living for us, in his dying for us, and in his ascension. He is the confession that we hold fast to. And because we have this great high priest to whom we hold fast, we are told then in Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if you will, join me in prayer once again as we look at this verse. Father, in this moment, we exalt you and glorify you. With all the saints and angels, we proclaim you are holy, holy, holy. Pray that you would be exalted among us now, Lord, as we draw near to you, towards your throne that is characterized by grace. And we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, and that in him we can boldly approach you, great almighty God. We ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to quickly look at Hebrews 4.16 and its implications for prayer. And then what I want to do is transition uh, towards developing a biblical theology of prayer. So I want to kind of go over biblical theology and what that is and how does prayer link up into biblical theology. And then we'll conclude with a look at the Lord's Prayer. So we have a lot to accomplish. So let me read um, again in Hebrews chapter 4. Let's start in verse 13 to kind of just give us a context says there in verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So since verse 16 mentions God's throne, calling it a throne of grace, let's recall quickly just what we looked at last night, the throne. Uh, We learned that God sits on his throne. He's the king. He's a pure king. He's a just and faithful king. He's a powerful and perfect king. He is a delightful, eternal creator king. And Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we can draw near to 
this throne and this God upon this throne by way of our high priest, Jesus. How amazing is it that this king draws us near? The phrase, draw near, simply means that we are invited to come into God's presence with our request. And although this is a powerful throne for those in Christ, it is a throne of grace. It is a throne characterized by grace towards us. Because of the great work of our great high priest, Jesus, we can draw near. So I want to ask two questions of this text. Number one, how do we draw near? And number two, what are the benefits of drawing near? First, how do we draw near? Verse 16 tells us that we are to draw near with confidence. With confidence. Which means that we can come near to God through Christ, our great high priest. And because of that, we have no reason to fear at all. We come into the presence of the Almighty with courage. The word in the original language for confidence means a state of boldness, courage, fearlessness, especially in the presence of persons of high rank. Think about all of the high-ranking people of today that you cannot come near to. You cannot make a trip up to Washington, D.C., to the White House, and expect to walk straight into the Oval Office of the President of the United States. Or if you love all things British, like I know some in this room do, you cannot take a flight over to London today, can't knock on the gate of Buckingham Palace, and expect to have an audience with Queen Elizabeth II. No, in either case, if you strode up to these places with confidence, you just might get arrested. (laughs) So, think of this, though. Through your union with the Son of God, Jesus, you can, and not only can, but are encouraged here to come into God's presence with confidence. MacArthur says the word confidence not only means courage, but in the original language, The word implies openness of speech, freedom of speech, freedom to speak. MacArthur concludes, he says, We can now go into the Holy of Holies. We can go into the presence of God anytime we want and say whatever is on our hearts without any fear. We who are in Christ. So, we go with confidence, but what are the benefits of drawing near? Verse 16, again, it says that we do this and we do it to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The benefits are this. We receive mercy and we find grace. The New American Commentary says, this mercy is that we find forgiveness of sins and this grace is for needed assistance in some trial or temptation. So with this in mind, we can draw near that we can go into the presence of God anytime we want and say whatever is on our hearts without any fear. And that in doing so, we find mercy and grace during our trials and our temptations. So those are the benefits. And now I want to kind of transition and speak about a biblical theology of prayer. I'd like to take this last teaching time to do less of an expository lesson here on the text and lay a biblical theology as a foundation for your prayers. Because we may be able to go and and say whatever is on our hearts before the Lord without fear, but the Bible does give a form to our prayers, 
in that the scriptures present ways that we should pray, that we should not miss. And I think it's really appropriate for us to understand the way we see prayer presented in the Bible. So, a biblical theology of prayer. Actually, I learned about biblical theology through a few different avenues, one through Southern Seminary that I attended in Louisville, um, but also as a new member here at Grace Church, I think it was back in 2013 or 14, uh, there was a class for new members at the Nash's home on biblical theology where we went through the book God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. And in that book, um, we learned that there is an overarching meta-narrative to the scripture. So I encourage you, if you've never read that book, God's Big Picture, uh, I encourage you to get it. But you still might be asking, well, what is biblical theology? Um, Nancy Guthrie, she has done a lot of work in this area, does a lot of writing on biblical theology. She defines it this way. It's not systematic theology, but rather it seeks to put forth the entire theology of the Bible as a unified narrative that conveys a coherent and consistent message. So let me repeat that. Nancy says that biblical theology is not systematic theology, but rather it's a theology that seeks to put forth the entire theology of the Bible as a unified narrative that conveys a coherent and consistent message. So when you seek to do a biblical theology of a topic in the Bible like prayer, the best way to go about that exercise is to learn to trace the theme, such as prayer, within the confines of the narrative of the Bible, which is the coherent and consistent message of the Bible otherwise called the overarching theme or what some people call the meta-narrative of the scriptures. So to do that, for us to trace kind of prayer within the confines, I first want to remind you what the overarching theme of the Bible is. It's God's story of creation, the fall of man, redemption through Christ, and the restoration of all things. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So I'll go quickly through those markers of the overarching biblical narrative, and then I'll seek to locate prayer within that narrative. Creation, of course, we find it in Genesis 1 and 2. We're all familiar with that, I believe. It's there that we learn that God created the heavens, the light. He divides the day from the night. He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, the land, the sea, the animals, and man and woman who are created as the pinnacle of God's creation in his image to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Men and women are blessed by God to literally go and exercise dominion over everything. That's Genesis 1, which is the bird's eye view. And then in Genesis 2, is seeking to unpack maybe in more detail, zooming in on what happened in Genesis 1. We learn in Genesis 2, that God places Adam in the garden to tend it. He gives him the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam, we see Adam naming the animals, but still no helper is found who corresponds to him. So God creates woman out of Adam's rib and gives the woman to Adam. And Adam names her woman. So that's a recap of creation, the first marker. The second marker, the fall, found in Genesis 3 which we're all also familiar with. The opening verses there, we see, though, the exact reverse of the command given to Adam and the woman taking place. Instead of seeing the man and woman 
exercising dominion over all creation. We see an animal approaching the woman, the serpent, and the woman is tempted by the serpent to disobey God's command to not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. So Eve takes of the fruit, she eats it and gives it to her husband who also eats of it. As a result, God curses the serpent, he curses the ground, and he gives consequences for sin for Adam and for Eve and for both of them together. Adam's specific consequence, you know, is hardship in the, in the um, working the ground, toil and working the ground, and Eve's is pain and labor, and that her desire would be for her husband, but that her husband would rule over her. So the consequences for both of them then are that they are banished away from God's presence. They're sent out of God's presence, away from him, out of the garden. So that's the fall. The third marker is redemption. So in the midst of the curses and consequences in chapter 3 of Genesis, in the midst of that, God gives the promise of redemption as he's speaking the curse over the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this verse has been called the first announcement of the gospel, that there will be an offspring of the woman who will come and defeat the serpent. This offspring is none other than Jesus, the offspring of the woman born of Mary who defeats sin and Satan by his righteous life, atoning sacrifice, and victorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. As we learned in the last session, this offspring of the woman, as our great high priest, brings us back into the presence of God. So that's creation, fall, and redemption, the first three of the four markers of the biblical narrative. And finally, restoration. In Genesis 3.20, the narrative there teaches us that Adam gives the woman a new name. So before, up until that point, she had just been called woman. Woman was her name. But in Genesis 3.20, Adam renames her, and her name means life, because she is to be the mother of the living. And this is reflecting back the salvific promise of God in Genesis 3.15. Both man and woman had transgressed and brought death into the world. Yet, from Genesis 3.20 onward, when Adam and Eve spoke or heard her new name, they would forever be reminded of the promised offspring to come, who would bring victory over the sin and death that they had introduced into the world. In naming Eve, Adam made sure that neither he nor Eve would ever forget that promise. And with that promise, a new name comes the hope that Adam and Eve would be restored to their original purpose, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the whole earth, and subdue it, and to enjoy God in his very presence. After Adam gives the woman her new name, Eve, the Lord covers the sin of Adam and Eve by covering their nakedness through sacrificing animals for them in Genesis 3.21. So restoration is provided and yet, it does not fully come. Because as the story goes on, as I just mentioned, they are put out of the garden. There is uh, not immediate redemption and restoration, 
But the story goes on, and you know it's one of bloodshed and struggle and sin. And this is where we begin to understand prayer in light of the overarching narrative of the Bible. It starts in Genesis 4.1. You see Adam and Eve kind of hoping for this promised offspring. In Genesis 4.1, it says, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Genesis 4 goes on to show us that Cain is not the promised one that Adam and Eve were probably thinking that he would be. In fact, he is the exact opposite. After he grows up, you know he doesn't please the Lord with his offering, but he's jealous of his brother Abel, which leads him to murder his brother. So here Eve is, having received this promise, but she's left without one son, Abel, and left with one son who is cursed and banished away in the middle of Genesis 4. Sin is abounding and flourishing. They had to have been wondering, where is the promised offspring who will crush the head of the serpent? Genesis 4 concludes in verses 25 and 26. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then this is where we see for the very first time prayer being mentioned in the Bible. In Genesis 4, 26b, it says there, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, a guy named Gary Miller has written a book calling upon, calling upon the name of the Lord. And he says this. He says, There's this growing sense that the promise of Genesis 3.15 may not be fulfilled immediately. The expected offspring is clearly neither Cain, nor Abel, nor Seth, nor Enosh. It seems that at this point the realization begins to dawn on the Adamic community that the fulfillment of promise may take some time. In context, this is the most natural explanation of the fact that Enosh's birth leads to people calling on the name of Yahweh. Thus, Miller concludes, he says, the biblical trajectory of praying is a cry for God to do what he has promised to deal with the reality of sin by delivering on his covenant promises. Then, he says, the peripheral categories, such as praise, lament, intercession, and meditation on God's word, take their meaning and boundaries from this covenantal approach to prayer. So he also concludes, prayer throughout the Bible is to be primarily understood as asking God to come through on what he has already promised. And we know that God has come through on what he has promised in Genesis 3.15. Christ has come. He has appeared on the scene in the Bible in the four Gospels. God fulfilled his promise to Eve thousands of years later when a young virgin conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit and gave birth to the Son of God, Jesus. And yet, while Jesus inaugurated and uh, set into play the restoration of all things during his time on earth, 
we're still in this waiting period for the full restoration of God's kingdom to to a state that is even better than that state of the Garden of Eden. For in the Garden of Eden, as we just looked at, man and woman obviously were capable of falling into sin, yet when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom on earth, either in the millennial reign or in the new heavens and the new earth, depending on your end times beliefs, uh, glorified saints will no longer be capable of sinning or falling away from God in sin. Well, what does that have to do with prayer then, if God has answered the prayers of those who began to call upon the name of the Lord? For the promised one came, was born, lived, died, and rose again. The reality is that we are still hoping for the restoration of all things. The offspring came, died, rose, ascended, but here we are in the waiting period for the ultimate final restoration and for the complete crushing of the serpent of Genesis 3, who by the end of time has become the great dragon of Revelation 12. Revelation 12 says this, it calls him the great dragon who is otherwise known as the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan the one who deceives the world. We are living as God's church in this tension, promised offspring of the woman given, victory in Christ accomplished, but we are attacked, we're hard-pressed and tempted on every side, and the devil still roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We are in the midst of spiritual warfare, waiting for the full expression of God's kingdom to come in this world. And that is why we are told to pray for God's kingdom to come, for God's will to be done on this earth as it is done in heaven. And that's the major focus of the model prayer given to us by Jesus himself in Matthew, that God's kingdom would come and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. If our prayers are to be anything, they are to be kingdom-oriented, and kingdom focused. They can be more than that, but they should never be less than that. To quote Gary Miller again at this point, he says, to pray for the kingdom to come is an ultimate extension of calling on the name of Yahweh. It is a plea that God will act so decisively in judgment and salvation that his glory will be unveiled and all as a result enabled to see him as the holy, almighty king that he truly is. It is thus a prayer for the end, for the consummation of the kingdom of God, and for the bringing into being of the new earth and the new heavens that the end entails. So let us consider briefly the model prayer given to us by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 6. First, I want you to understand the context in which This prayer is given to the disciples. It comes in the midst of Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, the ESV Study Bible says that Jesus expounds the reality of discipleship lived in the presence and power of the kingdom of God, but within the everyday world. Some interpreters have thought that the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to describe a moral standard so impossibly high that it is relevant only for a future millennial kingdom. Others have thought its primary purpose was to portray the absoluteness of God's 
moral perfection and thereby drive people to despair of their own righteousness so they will trust in the imputed righteousness of Christ. Both views fail to recognize that these teachings, rightly understood, form a challenging, challenging but practical ethic that Jesus expects his followers to live by in this present age. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew 6, 5-14. I'll start in verse 5 to kind of give the context, and then it'll go into the model prayer in verse 9. Matthew 6, 5 through 14. Verse 5 says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So Martin Luther, in his catechism, he divides the Lord's Prayer in this way. He says there's the introduction, then there's seven petitions, and then a conclusion. And he encourages Christians to pray this model prayer according to the form it provides through the introduction, the seven petitions, and the conclusion, which maybe many of you in this room already do. I seek to make it a matter to pray this prayer, if I can, every single day, Uh, sometimes multiple times a day within its form. So with that in mind, I'd like to give you some commentary from Luther on each part of the prayer to give you practical helps on praying each section. So first, the introduction is, Our Father, which art in heaven. Luther asks, what does this mean? He says, Here, God tenderly urges us to believe that He is our true Father and that we are His true children so that we may ask him confidently with all assurance as dear children ask their dear father. So our Father which art in heaven is really just remembering uh, that as the people began to call upon the name of the Lord, here Jesus is also instructing us to call upon the name of the Lord. And what is the name of the Lord given to us? It's Father. He is exalted in heaven, sitting upon the throne, and we can enter into his presence as his children, and he is our Father. Next, the seven petitions of the prayer. First, hallowed be thy name. Luther says this, God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may become holy among us also. So when I seek to pray this, I often think on the fact that the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom. And so I pray that as God is holy, that I would come to understand that, I would fear Him and reverence Him, and that I would live in such a way that would not bring dishonor to God's name, but would bring Him glory, that I would hallow His name. Well, the second petition is, Thy kingdom come. Luther says, How does God's kingdom come? When our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit, He says, so that by His grace we believe His holy word, and lead a godly life here in time and there in eternity. So as I think through this phrase, thy kingdom come, I begin to look forward to the return of Christ. And I ask God every day, Lord Jesus, would you come back? Father, send the Son to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. Lord, I pray today that the dead in Christ would be raised and those of us who remain, that we would be raised to meet you all in the air. Praying that Jesus would return every day, that he would come and set up his righteous kingdom on this earth. And yet, also knowing in that prayer that if Jesus tarries, that the kingdom is also extended over all this earth through the proclamation of the gospel. So I began to pray that the church would boldly proclaim the gospel and that the king and his kingdom would extend over all the earth through those who profess Christ and share the gospel. Well, next, the third petition is, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luther asked, How is God's will done? When God breaks and hinders every evil plan and intention which do not want to let us hallow the name of God or to let his kingdom come. So when I think of this section and when I pray through it and meditate on it, I pray for God, uh, for his sovereignty and his perfect will and ask that all that would happen every day would be that that pleases him, that he would accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish in the world, especially in me, in my marriage, in my family members, in my church, in all local churches, Pray for God's will to be accomplished in my work life, in my city and state, in this country, all over the world. But also, thinking through thy will be done, I also began to confess my own stubbornness and ask that the Lord would bend my will to his and that I would submit to his lordship every single day. Well, the fourth petition is, give us this day our daily bread. Luther asks, what is meant by daily bread? Everything that belongs to the support and needs of the body, he answers, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, houses, property, etc. So when I pray through this section, it's a reminder, because we're also blessed in here. We could begin to think, oh, everything I have is just always going to be there. I'm always going to have this job. I'm always going to have money to provide food. I'm always going to have a shelter over my head. But this is a reminder that everything we have is a daily dependence upon the provider, God who provides and meets for all of our needs. And then I also think on Jesus saying that he is the bread of life. And I ask God to give me communion with Christ every day, that Jesus would be the bread that satisfies my soul. The fifth petition is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those 
who trespass against us. Luther says, We pray in this section, or this petition, that our Father in heaven would not look upon our sins or deny our prayers on account of them. Instead, we pray that he would grant all our petitions by grace. And it's in this section that I begin to confess particular sins to the Lord. I pray through the gospel, reminding my soul of gospel promises. And then I ask for help in remembering the gospel so that I might extend that same gospel grace to those who have sinned against me. Number six, the sixth petition, lead us not to temptation. Luther asks, what does this mean? He says, God tempts no one. However, we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our flesh may not deceive us or seduce us into false belief. So when I pray this section, I begin to name specific temptations I'm struggling with, like idleness or worry, um, confessing those before the Lord, and asking that God would help me to not give in to temptation to sin. And I pray through the idea that because I have died and I have been raised with Christ, um, by Christ being in union with Christ, I can, by God's Spirit, not give in to temptations. And then seventh, deliver us from evil. Luther asks, what does this mean? He says, we pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would deliver us from every evil of body and soul. So I pray that when I get to this section, I pray that God would lead me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And then because of the emphasis here on leading not into temptation and being delivered from evil, I then think through the armor of God and pray that the Lord would help me to be rooted with the helmet of salvation, that my mind would remember that I have been saved, blessed plate of righteousness, I've been given Christ's righteousness to cover me. I pray that my uh, loins would be girded up with truth, that all of my life would be consistent with and based upon the truth and doctrines of the Bible that would not go to the right or the left, but stick straight on true doctrine. Uh, that take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, taking up God's Word and taking up faith in Christ and having feet shod with good news of the Gospel that I might proclaim the Gospel to others. And so then it comes to the end the conclusion, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Luther again asking, what does this mean? And he answers, that I should be certain that these petitions are acceptable to our Father in heaven and that he hears them. For he himself has commanded us to pray in this way and has promised that he will hear us. So we say, amen, amen. That is, yes, yes, it shall be so. And so when I pray this section, I just affirm to God that I'm asking these things for his kingdom, for the advancement of his kingdom. I acknowledge that it can only be accomplished through his power. And I pray that all I have prayed would be done for his glory forever and ever. So as I draw this to a close, I want to ask, when you think about your prayers, what is the primary focus of your prayers? 
Are they shaped by concerns for self only? Not that concerns for self are bad, but this prayer of being about God's kingdom teaches us that our prayer should be gospel-shaped and concerned with God's salvation, His glory and the redemption He offers to men and women, and that His kingdom is advanced. So when you pray, is there a kingdom-mindedness that is shaping your prayers? The conclusion is this. Prayer is one of the primary means for cooperation in God's mission in the world, and requests supporting the essentials of Jesus' prayer will be answered because they conform to God's purposes for this world in making known the divine name through Jesus. So, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can call you Father. That as we call upon the name of Yahweh, uh, as Jesus said when he spoke to Mary, he was ascending to his Father and her Father. We thank you that Jesus made it possible for us to call upon you as Father. We pray that your name would be hallowed amongst us. Father, your name is holy and righteous and good. You are pure and just. And I pray, Father, that we would continue to live in reverent awe of you, that all of our lives would reflect the belief that we have that you are holy. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we do pray right now in this moment that you would send the Lord Jesus back today. Come, Lord Jesus. We ask that your kingdom would be fully expressed, that the ancient serpent would be completely overcome. But Lord, we pray that if you do tarry, we pray that we would be about the business of the kingdom, that our minds and our eyes and our hearts would be set on the return of Christ. And therefore, while you tarry, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to go forth and proclaim the good news of the kingdom, that Jesus is returning, and that there is still time to repent and believe. So help us to be people who go and share forth the gospel to those who don't know. We pray that your will would be done in us. We pray that our will would not be done, but your will would be done. That we wouldn't have hardened, stubborn hearts. That we wouldn't be, as Israel often was, stubborn in their hearts. But we pray that our will would bend and our knees would bow to you as Lord in our lives every single day. We pray this would happen on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that you would give us this day our daily bread. We thank you for breakfast this morning, for lunch this afternoon, for the dinner that's coming. We thank you for the clothes we wear, the homes we live in, the jobs we have, the family members we have. All the many ways, Lord, you have blessed us. You have provided our daily bread. And we pray that you remind us that we are dependent upon you. You are a great provider. We need you. And we do pray, Lord, today 
that you would give us, give us a measure of Christ, that we might commune with Jesus and that he would be the bread that satisfies our souls. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lord, you know the sins of our hearts, the struggles, the weaknesses that we have. We thank you that you are a great high priest who has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Lord, you know our struggle. You are acquainted with it. And we thank you that you intercede for us now to forgive us of our sins and help us to be reminded to extend that same forgiveness to others. Help us to have relationships shaped by the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would lead us not into temptation. As we thought about holding fast to our confession, the confession that Christ is Savior and Christ is Lord, the confession that maybe we once made as a church member before a church body. Help us to hold fast to that. Lead us not into temptation to turn to the right or to the left, away from true doctrine. Help us to hold fast to true doctrine, Lord. And we pray that you would deliver us from the evil one. We pray, Lord, that Satan would not have his way with us, that you would hold us fast, Lord. Help us not to be consumed by evil, but help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us to look unto Jesus. And we pray you would deliver us from evil and protect us from sin. So, Lord... We pray that you would do all of these things. For yours is the kingdom. It is your kingdom, Lord. Yours is the glory. Yours is the power. We pray that you would do all of these things by your power and for your glory to honor your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.